Good morning, everybody. So good to see you this morning and worship with you. My uh, roommate once told me you can never have too much Jesus or too much prayer, so why don't we just bow our heads this morning and pray one more time before we read some Bible passages. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for um, being our only king forever as we sung about this morning. And thank you, Lord, for washing away our sins and making them, making us white as snow. We came here this morning, Lord, so that we can just walk in that truth a little bit more, so that studying your word, we can relate to you just as such, as our wonderful God and King and our incredible, unbelievable Savior, who loves us, Lord, to the point of death. And so we ask that this morning your Holy Spirit would do just that, would transform us in little ways and in big ways, Lord, to be more like you, to walk in your love and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? I saw a funny movie recently where the protagonist was asked that question by one of the other characters in the movie. And the character asks her that question because this character, he's been getting followed by the CIA for a few months. And he's kind of starting to pick up on the fact that someone might be following him. You know, he's like, that car behind me is there just a little too often, and I'm seeing people walking alongside me just a little too often, and so it kind of starts to go crazy, you know? He's like, am I being followed or something? So when he sits down next to this acquaintance of his in this comedy on a park bench, she just so happens to, by coincidence, say something that relates to his personal life that she wouldn't have normally known, but by coincidence, she does. And it's too much for the poor guy. <laughs> he instantly assumes that she must be in league with these people who've been following him and studying his life. And so he jumps up off of the park bench and he looks at her and he screams, who are you? And of course, it's, it's funny because she's not with the CIA. <laughs> she's just um, you know, an acquaintance of his, so she just looks at him and she's like, I'm just me. And he's not buying it, so he, he looks around and sure enough, there's like one of the agents like, oh, I see him right over here. And he, he's, he just takes off running. He looks at her, he looks at the agent, he takes off running. So if you've been reading the book of Mark with us over the past few months, you know that people have been asking that same question about Jesus. People have been saying, who are you, Jesus? In Mark chapter 6, we read about some people saying, you know, he's got to be John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others were saying, no, 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 it's not John the Baptist. It's Elijah. It's Elijah, that's who he is. And still others were saying, no, 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 he's, he's, one of the, he's like one of the prophets of old. God sent us another prophet, finally. And so there seems to be this burning question in people's minds as Jesus goes about his life and ministry. Who is this Jesus? And we know, of course, that based on the Bible, that the answer we give to that question is very important. Who we believe in our hearts Jesus is, what we believe about his identity determines our destiny. 
The Bible would say that your future, beginning now and going on forever, comes down to this critical question. Who is Jesus? And the answer that the Bible gives us is this. Jesus is king. He's the ruler, not just of the entire universe, but more specifically, of your heart, if you are a follower of Jesus. He's the king, which sounds a little bit funny to a lot of us who've never, you know, served a king or lived under the rule and authority of a king, which is probably most of us. But to people throughout history who have lived and served under kings, it makes total sense, just like it sounds. He's in charge. He calls the shots. And whether you like it or not, you serve the king because he's the king. But what we'll see this morning is that although Jesus is unmistakably the king of our hearts, we oftentimes don't live as though he's the king of our hearts. We're going to pick up the study in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. And we'll start reading in verse 27. And as we read here, see if you can pick up on the fact that Jesus is the king. It says this, starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus is walking, traveling with his disciples, and he poses the question to them, who do people say I am? And so they repeat what we already know as the audience, the, the, the masses have been saying about Jesus from chapter 6. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. We know Herod thought that. It says Herod thought after he executed John the Baptist and Jesus started doing these amazing things, Herod said, it must be John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others think you're Elijah. And that was because the Scripture said that Elijah would come just before the Messiah. Still others think you're, you're, you're like one of the prophets of old who God has sent to us. And then he, he makes it more personal. He says, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? They've been following him now for a couple of years. And if you're one of his disciples this morning, you might imagine that he turns the question to you this morning. Who do you say that I am? And the answer that Peter gives on behalf of the disciples is, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. He warns him not to tell anyone about him. Now, it's important to know that in 
Peter's mind, when he says Messiah, he's thinking king. You see, the average Jew living in the first century at this time was awaiting the arrival of a messianic king who, when he showed up, would immediately take his throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign forever over God's transformed nation of Israel. These are the old covenant promises that they were expecting regarding the arrival of this Messiah. When this king took his throne, it would mean the judgment of Israel's enemies. We read that in Joel. It would mean the return of the exiles. We read that in Micah. The renewal of the land itself in Israel. The rebuilding of the temple. The establishment of a new covenant. The outpouring of the Spirit. And more. So you can see why when Peter says, you're the Messiah, there must have been so much hope and expectation that this was indeed the king who would rule and reign and usher in this eternal new kingdom of God forever. Especially since they were his number one buds. That'd be a pretty good situation if your best friend is the king of the world forever. Now, their understanding of his messiahship wasn't wrong, but it was partial. Kind of like the story of the blind man who is healed that mirrors this account. They're right. He, he saw people who looked like trees. They see the truth of Jesus, but it's partial at this point. It's partial, as we'll see as we read through the passage. And one of the reasons it's partial is that while Jesus did come to be the king, he came in his first coming to rule from heaven over the hearts of his people. This is why when he stands before Herod at the end of John's gospel, not Herod, Pilate, before his execution, Pilate asks him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say that I'm the king of the Jews, and this is the reason that I came into the world. Yes, he says, I'm the king of the Jews. But in that same conversation, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, he knows that he will suffer and die, rise from the dead, and rule and reign from heaven over the hearts of his disciples, which begs the important question this morning. If we believe that Jesus is our king, do we live as though Jesus is our king who rules and reigns over our hearts? Do we search the scriptures to see what he has commanded us about how to live in his spiritual kingdom? Do we spend time in, in communion with him through prayer to seek his will about the most important decisions of our lives? Do we get counsel from other believers who are filled with God's presence, who are the body of Christ on earth, to speak into our lives and help us determine the will of the King, 
Or do we say that Jesus is king and believe that he is king, Lord, that means master, but go on living as though we were king, as though we serve no master but ourselves? Meaning, are we not particularly interested in what he commands as right or wrong in Scripture? as the king and author of Scripture? Do we make important decisions in life just sort of based on how we feel and what we think is best? And do we neglect the counsel of his body, his people who are filled with his presence? Because after all, the truth is, we're king. We live life the way we want to live it, doing what we want to do, going where we want to go, saying what we want to say. I had um, lunch with one of my friends here from church the other day. We started talking about all the great reasons to leave California. Have you ever had this conversation? And, you know, we just kind of started, and they just kept coming. We were like, you know, if you leave California, the taxes are a lot lower in some of these other states, let me tell you. And then uh, we said, well, yeah, not to mention, when you get there, you can actually buy a house. I mean, the prices of real estate's a lot more affordable. Yeah, not to mention the crime rate isn't exactly skyrocketing in some of these places like it is around here. And, you know, once we got going, we just kind of went on for a little while, just brainstorming all the reasons why, why it would make sense to leave California. And so finally, kind of the pressure built, and I asked the obvious question. I was like, well, why don't you leave California? And uh, his answer, it surprised me and it unsettled me. It actually made me uncomfortable. And in hindsight, I believe God was just about to start teaching me something. This is what he said. Nonchalantly, matter-of-factly, oh, well, I'm here because I believe this is where God's placed me. That was was uncomfortable for me to hear that. Uncomfortable because if you'd asked me, I wouldn't have had an answer that spiritual. (laughs) And it made it worse because this guy I'm looking at, he's like someone I look up to because he's someone who I see as being more powerful than me. He's a successful business owner. He's, uh, He's married. He has kids and grandkids. He has titles in the community. He's someone who has a lot of freedom to do what he wants. And yet when I asked him, well, why don't you leave California? This is in so many words, because I'm not the boss. God is. And I think he put me here for a reason, and I'm trying to fulfill that purpose. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, but his little statement right there just stuck in my head. And it kept going around in my head like, I know there's something convicting and rebuking here that I'm supposed to learn from. And I think there was, because then I'm not really doing much with it. It's just bothering me. And this Christian song comes on when I'm listening to music. Let Let me read you the lyrics of this song that comes on after I've had this conversation. And it's playing in my head and bothering me. This is the song I hear on iTunes. Shuffle. It says, if you say it's wrong, then I'll say no. If you say release, 
I'm letting go. If, you, if you're in it with me, I'll begin. And when you say to jump, I'm diving in. If you say be still, then I will wait. If you say to trust, I will obey. I don't want to follow my own ways. I'm done chasing feelings. Spirit, lead me. I heard that song and I instantly thought of this guy I just had lunch with. And I was like, man, that seems like that's his attitude. That seems like that's his posture before the Lord. Is God, I just want to know what you ask of me. What's right? What's wrong? Where to go? Where to stay? And I'm content with that. And so it was, I saw a connection, but it didn't really come home until I started, uh, I joined the Rooted group. Joined this Rooted group, and I've read the Rooted book a few times, but we get to chapter two, and it's called something like How God Speaks to Us. And it just had some obvious stuff. It said God speaks to us through the Bible. This is word in written form. It's our ultimate standard of objective truth. And he speaks to us through prayer. When we commune with him and wait on him, he leads us and guides us in prayer. And it said he speaks to us through his people who are filled with his presence and gifted to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our life. And in light of that conversation and that song, it kind of it hit me extra hard. And with our prayer experience where we met for an hour to pray and through our journal entries, I just sort of started asking Jesus what he wanted from me in a kind of fresh way. Like, okay, God, tell me what you want. What do you want me to repent of? Where do you want to lead me and guide me, teach me? And although I'm still a baby at this, don't ask me when this all happened, but life's a lot better, isn't it, when you don't play God, when you don't pretend like you're the king of your life when you're not, when you don't feel that weight of every decision on your shoulders, when you're not trying to decide what's wrong or right, but you break against the rock of truth and obey the king of the universe. But thank God he's not just the king of the universe. Thank God he's not just the king of the universe, or we'd all be in trouble. Because he is a king of a kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice and love and I don't know about you, but I don't think I could live in that kingdom if it wasn't for Jesus. The king who's not just a king, but the king who came to die. To not only say, not only command us on how to live, but to suffer and die in our place because he knew we couldn't keep a single command. And after he paid the price for our sins, he rose from the dead. He said, now that I've taken your sins, you take my righteous life. So that you can live in a kingdom of perfect righteousness, justice, and love. We're going to 
continue reading the passage here. And as we pick up now in verse 31, listen to how Jesus isn't just the king. Thank God. He's also our Savior. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus confirms, yes, I'm the guy. I'm the Messiah, the king to end all kings. And then what does he do? In his very next breath, he says that the Son of Man must suffer and die. Talk about oxymoron, if that's the right word. The Son of Man, that's the king from Daniel chapter 7, who comes to rule and reign over an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. The Son of Man must suffer and die. Couldn't have been more confusing to the disciples because that wasn't in the list of their expectations based on the Old Covenant. The Son of Man comes to rule and reign and make their life amazing, not to die. But they couldn't have guessed that the one who comes to rule and reign and make your life amazing does it by taking on himself everything that is broken and wrong and evil in the world. Not only does he come to pour out, to, to, to judge God's enemies as they were hoping, yes, but he came to be the one who God's wrath for his enemies would be poured out on. And this is so shocking to them, so not in the playbook, that Peter takes Jesus aside you know, wraps his arm around God himself and pulls him aside from the group. And he sets him straight. No, <laughs> no, Jesus, I think you're mistaken. You're not dying, okay? We're not going to let that happen. But Jesus turns around and he sees the disciples looking and he rebukes Peter. He calls him Satan. Meaning that if you want Jesus to be your king, your God, who will make life wonderful and amazing for you, but you don't think you need him to be your savior. You don't think you have to repent, acknowledge your sin, and turn away from it to receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Well, then you have a satanic view of Jesus because Jesus will have no one in his kingdom if he doesn't make it possible through his sacrifice for sins, to wash away our sins and make us holy and righteous saints in his kingdom. And we don't have to wait until, until Jesus brings heaven to earth in its final form to begin living in this new kingdom 
Even now, Jesus makes what is impossible with men possible with God through his righteous life that he's given to us. Jesus, the ultimate king of a perfect kingdom, says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Impossible. But when we remember that Jesus never looked with lust, and that by grace, His life and righteousness is now ours, we find His power to look away, to not lust. Jesus says over His perfect kingdom, He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, if you even hate your brother, you've already murdered them in your heart. We're not going to be able to keep that one. Probably this week we won't be able to keep that one. But when we remember that Jesus paid the price for all the murder in our hearts, and he rose from the dead and gave us his life that never hates, his grace, we walk in that truth, and we learn to love instead of hate. One of my friends recently, or not recently, but one of my friends invited me one time on a, on a, on a bike ride. And he told me it was a 50-mile bike ride, so I always assumed it was a 50-mile bike ride. But this morning when I was thinking about what to say, I was like, for all I know, that was a 100-mile bike ride. I don't know if it was 50 miles. But he took me on this bike ride. I was totally out of shape, shouldn't have been on it, but I was also young and stupid. So I said, sure. I get on this bike, and I bike up a mountain road with him, miles and miles and miles until we get to this ridge that connects, that connects over to Mount Baldy, which is where we're supposed to ride down from. And when we got to that ridge, my body reached its absolute limit. It just ran out of strength. We got to this ridge. It's going up forever, it seems like, to the top of Mount Baldy. And I, and I, I look down, and I notice... Um, you know, I'm pushing through, I'm not giving up, but my front wheel just starts to twitch, like left, right, left, and then I fell off my bike. I, I physically couldn't go on anymore. Luckily, I caught myself with my foot, I climbed back on, and I start pedaling again. Moments later, my arms start to shake, my wheel starts to twitch, and I fall. I climb back on. It happens three or four times. I'm determined not to give up. But after three or four times of this happening, my friend who invited me on the ride, he slows down and he gets behind me on his bike, puts his hand on my lower back and he says, don't worry, this is what the pros do. And he starts to push me up this mountain road. He's riding his bike, has his hand on my back, and pushes me to the top of Mount Baldy. Now, it's just an illustration, okay? It's not perfect. But Jesus invites us on this impossible journey of discipleship to the king of absolute justice, righteousness, holiness. But he also gives us his justice, righteousness, and holiness to travel with him on that journey. 
he gives us his, his power to live a life like him. And we don't do it perfectly. Not on this side of the final arrival of God's kingdom. But even in this spiritual kingdom that we're living in, we find his grace and his strength to follow him more and more. And when we falter and we fail, we remember the cross. And we receive the grace and the power to keep going. And so as one of my friends once told me, ask yourself, am I living for salvation or from salvation? Am I trying to obey Jesus so that I can be good enough to earn a place in heaven? Or have I fallen on my knees at the feet of the Savior and received the free gift of forgiveness and salvation? And now do I strive to live up to that incredible calling? Do I live for salvation, which is impossible, or from salvation, which is possible because of the power and the grace of God that fuels that journey? It fuels it even when it's hard. Because as we've already kind of alluded to, following Jesus can be hard. It can be painful when, as the Scriptures promise, you face persecution for following Jesus. It can be painful when you realize that it's a life of constant self-denial, of saying, I want to do this in my flesh really bad, but it's not what Jesus wants. That can be a process that's difficult, uncomfortable. Sometimes life itself just seems to fall apart. Maybe you get sick with an illness, and, and you're praying to your God of love, and you can't help but wonder exactly how he's loving when he's letting you pass through hell. But in all of these scenarios where following Jesus isn't exactly a walk in the park, we keep following Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just the king. He isn't just the savior. But he's the one who is absolutely worth suffering for, even to the point of death. That's what we're going to see in this next passage as we finish reading these verses here. And we'll start now in verse 34. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 34. It says this, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So Jesus tells them 
that he has to suffer and die. Then he turns to the crowd and he says, all of you, if you want to follow me, you have to die. That's what he says, what he means by pick up your cross and follow me. That sounds weird to us. But in this day, 30,000 Jews in this time period were crucified. So, and when you're crucified, you pick up your cross. You have to. And you carry it to the place of your crucifixion. Then they nail you on the cross, and over the course of several days or more, you slowly die. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to die. And he says, if you want to follow me, you have to die too. Now, of course, he's speaking metaphorically on the one hand. He says, you've got to deny yourself. You have, to, you have to acknowledge that you have a sinful ambition and plan and, and rule for your life, and you have to let it go. You have to repent of your sins and follow Jesus instead of your crooked heart, right? But we also know that sometimes when you do that, as he makes clear wrapping up this section, sometimes when you die to yourself, when you lose your life and find it in Christ, through his forgiveness. You do die literally. You will be executed for your faith in Jesus. More Christians are executed every day now than at any time before in history for their faith. And yet, whether it's the, the, the metaphorical suffering of denying our selfish desires of the flesh, or whether it's the suffering of persecution, which is being emphasized here, even to the point of death. We don't stop believing in Jesus because as he puts it, what good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? In other words, yeah, it hurts. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you might have to lose your very life. But so what? What if you kept your life? And what if it was great and comfortable because you rejected me? Then you lose your soul, and that's not worth it. I, was, I met someone yesterday who, his family came here from Nigeria. And I was describing to him, or actually we were discussing, he knows more about it than me, the persecution of Christians in Nigeria. And I was... I was discussing it with him because I had just read this article in Voice of the Martyrs about a pastor standing at the entrance of his village in Nigeria, keeping guard. And he stood there through the entire night and into the morning. And in the early hours of the morning, behind him, he hears gunshots and screaming. He turns around and he sees smoke rising from the village of mostly Christians. The terrorists who hate them for their faith in Jesus had snuck in through a different way. Inside the village, his wife was running for her life, holding their three-year-old grandchild in her arms. As she ran, she witnessed a friend being murdered on the street. As she ran, she, she fell and dropped her grandchild over and over until finally someone else running picked up the child and she was separated. 
She ran for so long that she got lost in the wilderness. The following day, after hiding through the night, she finally finds her way back to the village. When she gets there, she finds that her three-year-old granddaughter has been murdered, along with 70 Christians living in the village. What's amazing whenever you read these stories in Voices of Martyrs is the interview they do with the people towards the end. And they interview this pastor who'd been standing guard there futilely at the entrance of the village. And you know what he doesn't say? The price is too high. I've instructed everyone in the village to abandon their faith in Christ in hopes that we won't be persecuted anymore. Not even close. Here's what he says. He says, before the attack, our faith was broken. He said, we heard about other villages being attacked and our faith was shaken. But now that our village has been attacked, our faith is strengthened. And how could he not, after the grieving and the running and everything, how could he not arrive back at that conclusion? Because the, the God who promised persecution is the same God who promises salvation. The same God who says, though you sacrifice your comforts and pleasures and money for me, what else would it make sense to do? What good would it be if you gained the whole world, but you lost your soul? And so, when we're at a job and we've stopped getting promoted, because word has gotten around enough that we're honest, that when it comes down to it, we won't lie to get the sale for our team. And we sort of start to think that maybe that's why everyone around us is getting promoted, and we're not. That's not fun. That hurts. To know that your family has less to be provided for because you're trying to follow Jesus. Keep following Jesus. It'll be worth it in the end. All the money in this world wouldn't be worth turning your back on Christ. And when we're struggling with sin, when there's a, a, a sin that, that, that besets us and we hate it, and we've fought it, and we've got help for it, and we've been prayed for it, and we still struggle with it. Keep struggling. Keep fighting. Because the day will come when the fight with sin will be over. If you hang on to Jesus, the King and Savior of your soul. And when your world is falling apart because the God of love and grace and comfort is letting you waste away with a debilitating disease. And in the pain and agony, you can't help but express your doubts and fears as the God of love seems to be so unloving and so uncomforting as you suffer indescribably. Hang on to Jesus. Because all the suffering of this world 
for those who are found in Christ is the closest we ever get to hell. But if we would let go of Christ and turn our backs on him for the simple pleasures and comforts of this life, well, then we will find that this life was the closest we ever got to heaven. Because Jesus is our king of the universe and our hearts. He's the king who came to die so that we could be a part of his kingdom. And because that is true, let us endure any pain, any suffering, any hardship to walk with him, even to the point of death, because death is just a door. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for um, sweet humiliation, Lord. The sweet humiliation of telling us that, um, Lord, that we need you. God, it's sweet because when we humble ourselves and confess our sins, we find indescribable, permanent, life-changing grace and love. And for the first time, Lord, in our surrender, we can be more like the people we wished we could be when we were lost in our sin and self-righteousness. And so, God, I pray that as we stand to, to sing these closing songs, Lord, that we would be reminded of your grace and your lordship and your love and that your Holy Spirit would continue to lead us in those things this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.